Good evening, folks. Happy Tuesday. Happy Players Championship Week. And thank you for coming back and joining me tonight here on Next on the Tee. I'm your host, Chris Mascaro, and it's time for, you know, what's what, right? The not named yet fifth major on the tour, right? We simply know it as the players. I think we all look forward to sitting down this weekend and watching what happens on the 17th, all the island green, right? You heard Donnie Hammond say on this show a few weeks ago, it can be the scariest shot in golf. He said, he, you know, the butterflies, butterflies came back to him all over again, just thinking about what it was like teeing it up on the 17th hole there. But it's always fun to watch and see how the guys, you know, deal with the closing three holes because 16 and 18 can be just as, uh, as stressful, especially if the winds are up. So it's going to be a lot of fun looking forward to uh, a, a wonderful weekend of golf and the players always seems to deliver. Now, what isn't stressful should be this show. In fact, it should be the opposite of that. So you know what? Sit back, relax, let us take your mind off everything else going on in your life for the next hour. And tonight, I've got two wonderful guests that I'm excited to talk with and share with you. And first up, I'm going to be joined by Debbie Doniger. You know Debbie from several sources, I'm sure. Debbie has an amazing list of accomplishments, which I'll share just a few with you, just to kind of wet your whistle, if you will. She won the 1992 ACC Championship when she was at the University of North Carolina. She is a top five teacher in the state of New York. She's a golf magazine top 100 teacher in America. You've seen her on the golf channel doing some playing lessons and fitness Friday sessions and she also hosts two golf shows two golf shows on Sirius XM's PGA channel and like I said that's just the tip of the iceberg of all the great things that she's done we'll talk about all of those things plus uh, some tips for how we can better prepare our bodies to play the game of golf and she'll be along with me here in just a few minutes Following Debbie, I'm going to get a return visit from the voice of golf, Peter Kessler. You guys know how much I love spending time listening to Peter tell stories about the history of golf, right? Tonight, you know, we'll talk about some of the parallels between the careers of Bobby Jones and Tiger Woods. When you go back and and you read about how dominant Bobby Jones was from about 1920 to 1930, it's very interesting and very similar to Tiger's run from 1997 to 2008. It gets even more similar when you look at how the media and the fans reacted when Bobby Jones announced that he was going to make his comeback at what was then the 1934 Augusta Invitational, what we all know now as the Masters. It's very similar to the media frenzy and the attention that surrounds Tiger, even when he does what he you know what he did last Sunday, which is finished tied for 55th. So I'm going to get Peter's thoughts on that and a whole lot more when he joins me a little bit later on in this half hour. So a lot more great stories and information coming your way tonight on this edition of Next on the T. Thank you so much for tuning in and taking the journey with me over the next hour. Before we get started, I want to remind you about our good friend Matthew Lawrence and his show Backspin Golf, which airs Sunday mornings from 8 to 9 a.m. Eastern Time. It's my regular Sunday, 8.03 a.m. tea time. It's broadcast on ESPN Radio AM 1300 WLXG up in, up in Lexington, Kentucky. You can stream it live by going online to their site at WLXG.com or by downloading the WLXG app. It's a great way to start your Sunday mornings. His four-minute older brother, Mitchell, also has a wonderful golf show that marries golf and travel. It's called Talking Golf Getaways, which you can find online at golfnewsnet.com or over on Audioboom. He and his co-host, Darren Bunch, travel all over the world, and they let you know about great places to play, stay, and even eat while you're there. Again, it's called Talking Golf Getaways, and you can stream it on golfnewsnet.com or on Audioboom. 
And as you guys know, we are sponsored by the French Lick Resort. Let's hear a word from our good friend Steve Rondonero about all the great things they've got going on up there. Play legendary golf at French Lick Resort, the only place in the country where you can play courses by two Hall of Fame designers on the same property. Our Pete Dye and Donald Ross courses offer two very different challenges. Experience them both and save with our Hall of Fame package. Our two historic hotels are unique as well. Cap it off with a fun visit to the French Lick Casino. Check us out online at FrenchLick.com. Bring a group and save even more. Play legendary golf this season at French Lick Resort. Yeah, folks, be sure to go online to FrenchLick.com to see for yourself what a wonderful place it is and to book your stay. And, folks, you've heard me talking about Club Hub sensors over the last several months. It's the best portable shot tracking and swing analysis golf device out there on the market. Other shot trackers tell you what happened. Club Hub tells you what happened and why. Take the progress that you make on the practice tee directly to your rounds with you with the only device of its kind that can go on the course with you. If you have Club Hub sensors on your clubs like I do, they screw right into the tops of your clubs, and I can tell you, you're going to learn more about your swing and all of the data surrounding it than you've learned probably since you've picked up a golf club, and certainly for me over the last 40 years that I've been playing the game. Because not only do you get GPS distances to the hazards and the green, but after your round, you can look back at the images and the layout of every hole in the course that you just played and see exactly where and how far you hit every shot. Another GPS tool in the market captures that and lets you go back and review you around the way the Club Hub app does. It's available for Androids or iPhones, and the app keeps track of your swing speed with every club in your bag, your tempo, your angle of attack, plus you're going to get a 3D view of your swing as well. Again, no other rangefinder can do all that for you. Go over to clubhubgolf.com to order your set of Club Hub sensors today and enter the coupon code NEXT to get 10% off on all products at checkout. Again, go to clubhubgolf.com, enter the coupon code NEXT, and you're going to get the best GPS and swing analysis tool on the market for a great low price, and you're going to see your game in a whole new way. Please also check out our friends at the Bobby Jones Apparel Company by going online to bobbyjones.com. Their spring collection is out, and the shift in seasons is an opportunity to change things up layer upon layer. They've added some great details, fresh colors, new additions with genuine enduring character. They make style easy. Find carefully coordinated outfits in a variety of colors and options by going online to bobbyjones.com. And we're also proud to be partnering with Russ Holden and the folks over at Caddy for a Cure. One of the most unique op- opportunities in the world of professional golf is available to you through Caddy for a Cure. Spend a day inside the ropes with one of the world's best players as their caddy. It's a fantastic way to have the time of your life while supporting our wounded service members and Fanconi Anemia. You're going to get to walk side-by-side side with your tour player experiencing professional golf as an insider. In addition to the amazing experience you're going to have, you're going to have a fantastic gift package for you from Caddy for a Cure, which includes Under Armour logo apparel and an eyewear package, a tour-grade caddy bib, which is suitable for autographs and framing, a tin cup ball marking gift, chef's cut real jerky, and professional photographs from your day. Go online to caddyforacure.com. That's C-A-D-D-Y-F-O-R-A-C-U-R-E.com. Caddyforacure.com to learn more.
All right, now joining me on the French Lick Resort guest line is Debbie Doniger. Let me give you some more background on Debbie. She played her college golf at the University of North Carolina from 1989 to 1992, and she captained the team in her junior and senior seasons. She won the 1992 ACC Championship, shooting rounds of 73, 73, 74, a three-round total of 220 at Bermuda Run Country Club in advanced North Carolina. She helped lead the Tar Heels to the team title by two strokes over Florida State. She was selected to the All-ACC team that year. She was one of five college seniors to represent the U.S. in the World University Golf Championship, and she won the individual bronze medal. She was named to the ACC's 50th anniversary women's golf team in 2003 as one of the best women golfers in the conference over its first 50 years. After college, she played on the Futures Tour, the Gold Coast Tour, and the European Tour. In 2015, Golf Digest ranked her as the fifth best teacher in the state of New York and top 50 in the country. She's also been named a top 20 teacher under 40. She is one of Golf Magazine's top 100 teachers in America. And if all of that wasn't enough, she is the director of golf instruction at Glen Arbor Golf Club up in Bedford, New York. And she hosts two golf shows on SiriusXM's PGA channel, The Golfer Girls with Natalie Gilbus and Golfer's Edge with Ben Shear. And I am honored she is with me tonight here on Next on the Tee. Good evening, Debbie. Thanks for coming on the show. Jeez, what an intro. <laughs> <laughs> hey, sit you've back, done a lot. Listen. <laughs> All good. So, Thank you so much for having me. So, uh, Debbie, as as I was doing the research and checking out your website, DebbieDoniger.com, I read that you started playing golf at the age of seven. What got you playing golf at seven? <clears throat> um. So. I grew up in Connecticut and right around where Kessler, your next guest, uh, is from. And we went out uh, to California every vacation with my family. I had my grandparents lived out in California. So I played a bunch of sports and just started playing golf at age seven. And by the time I was 12 years old, I decided that that was it. This is my passion in life. And, you know, would I have ever thought that you dated me in that intro, (laughs) that in my 40s, I would be um, still in golf in a different capacity, not playing the tour, but uh, I never would have imagined that I would be able to do what I do, love what I do. I'm sure Peter is surprised as well because he knew me as a child growing up uh, up here in the Northeast. But, yeah, I was definitely single-minded by the time I was 12, 13, and, and was able to forge relationships within the golf industry that has led me to where I am today. So I've been very fortunate and very lucky. And, Debbie, as a junior golfer, you work with Jim McLean. So, boy, right to the top with respect to instructor, uh, instructors. What was it like for you working with him? Right. So that that really is, is huge. It's huge in a lot of ways. Uh, one, Jim, when I started working with him, I was 12 years old at Quaker Ridge Golf Club in Scarsdale, which is a great club. Uh, Jim was probably – you know, maybe one or two in the Met section, which is the New York section, uh, as teachers, but wasn't heralded around the world as he is today. But he certainly was one of the best. And my parents were able to find out where he was, who was the best in our area. And Jim and I, um, you know, had a great run for a very, very long time. Um, I think that I was rooted in correct basics 
uh, correct fundamentals. He taught me how to play the game. He was not only a teacher, but a coach and, you know, just a very good friend and a mentor. And then subsequently, when I stopped playing for a living, uh, he became my boss and really trained me uh, how to teach and what to look for. So Jim falls under this huge umbrella for me as, you know, obviously my main mentor and somebody so important in my life. And there is absolutely no way that I would have the playing accolades that I have, that I would be able to play to this day the way I do with no practice whatsoever. You know, you and I, and I could shoot nothing. And um, also be able to teach the way I do and, and understand what to look for with all levels of players. So, you know, Jim, when I was 12 years old, let me tell you something. When you see on social media, uh, you know, teachers saying, wow, we didn't really understand how important center contact was until launch monitors came along. I am here to tell you that 30 years ago, we absolutely knew center contact was imperative. We were using indelible markers. We were using impact tape. And it wasn't just Jim. It was teachers of that ilk. So sometimes when you see things um, in modern day teaching and it seems earth shattering with these amazing teachers that I have been able to now call friends, um, you know, the, the, the fundamental center contact uh, was being taught way back when. So I think that I was really ahead of the game uh, in terms of, of understanding what I needed to do as a player to be really great. So you mentioned a minute ago that he taught you how to play the game. When you say play the game, is that, is that the fundamentals that you're mentioning, or was that strategy, how to course manage? What, what do you mean by he taught you how to play the game? Yeah, that's a good point. So not only were we, was I, um, you know, he helped me with all my technical aspects, my mechanics, um, the right grip for me you know, because everybody's built differently, uh, the parameters that I was able to swing in to play good golf, but playing course management-wise. I mean, Jim and I would be on the course, you know, till it got dark, and I would be running around chasing after my ball, but also playing with him. He would always play with me, so I would learn how to play. He was a great player in his own right and different little shots and different nuances. And like you said, course management, where to, you know, the rudimentary things, where to tee off on a tee box, what kind of shot am I going to play, uh, how to minimize the highest score possible from, from a very basic level to then when I was playing for a living to a very detailed professional level, you know, because then it becomes that much more important, the shots that you save on, on the golf course. So he's the all-around, not only consummate professional, but the all-around great teacher could teach all aspects of the game and really well so debbie how, how does a girl growing up in new york and playing junior golf in new york and winning everything as a junior in new york decide to play her college golf at north carolina i was so you're about five recruiting trips uh, I did not play on my high school team because only the boys could play i didn't want to play with the boys i also you know wanted uh, to play for a living and play golf in college. So my fifth recruiting trip uh, was either going to be to UCLA or North Carolina. 
And I had talked to the UCLA coach. I didn't like the four schools I had gone to visit. It was like, I can't see myself here. So if I don't like Chapel Hill, that's it. I'm just going to go to UCLA. She had already signed either one or two of my peers, and, and UCLA was going to be a top, top team. It already was. I liked the coach. Done deal. I didn't really know much about North Carolina or Chapel Hill because, like you said, people from this area, especially – you know, 25 plus years ago, nobody went to North Carolina. Nobody would got into Chapel Hill, let alone would, you know, sort of go south. And also, remember, this is 20, 25 years ago where I was really considered uh, a dork. And, you know, nobody was playing golf. Everybody was like field hockey and lacrosse and soccer. So it was just a very strange time. But I found solace and friendships on the AJGA and, of course, my little circle of junior golfers in the Met section. And then I took my trip to North Carolina. I got off the plane in Raleigh-Durham. I saw the national championships that Carolina had won, that Duke had won. And I said, oh, that's interesting. That's kind of cool and cool school spirit, team spirit. And my coach was there to pick me up and my dad was with me and she's the, was the sweetest, nicest person. Um, and then we were driving towards campus. I see these huge blue tar heels on the road, these amazing, beautiful green trees. It was like a perfect Carolina blue sky. And I said, that's it. We're done. I don't even need to get out of the car. We are done. <laughs> and then my teammates were just awesome. I mean, I had the best recruiting trip and just signed on the dotted line. I graduated high school early, six months, uh, worked with Jim, and was like, let's just go. It was the absolute greatest time, one of the greatest times of my life. So take us back to the 1992 ACC championship. What was it like for you, not only winning the event as an individual, but also helping the team win the conference championship as well? The ACCs, by my senior year, had just come back into fruition, and I remember it was like a goal. Like I wrote it down, uh, literally, with my sports psychologist, um, said that that was my goal. I wanted to win ACCs and just uh, did it. Uh, I remember specifically in that round I had four-putted, I don't know, in the beginning of my last round, and I just can remember to this day just being very emotionally level, even keeled, like whatever, it's still good. Um, the course was a really tough course. And when I had sunk the putt on the last hole, my main goal was like, oh my gosh, did we win as a team? Like I totally forgot, you know, I wanted to win the title, but I saw my teammates there and I was like, did we win? Did we win? And <laughs> we did win. And that was the most, most exciting part. And of course, you know, capturing the individual crown because it was a goal was so cool, but I was just so excited to win as a team. I mean, college golf, to be in an individual sport like golf, and for any of your listeners who have kids that play very seriously or, you know, just play in general, it's a loner sport. And so to be a part of a team, which you then are a part of, if you do have the opportunity to play D1, D2, or D3, you know, you get that sort of other aspect in an individual sport, and there's nothing better I, unless you choose – the only caveat would be if you choose the wrong team and the wrong coach, of which I have had students do that, and, and then it's a different scenario. And it makes me very upset because my experience was so phenomenal that when I see mistakes being made, you know, it's just, gosh, you don't get those years back, so you just sort of have to right the ship in your own way, and that's tough. 
A couple more on your time at North Carolina. But after you guys win the ACC championship, where, where was the celebration? Where did you guys go to, to uh, celebrate what you guys just accomplished? Oh, my gosh. I have no idea. I think that we were such a simple team. I'm sure we just, like, celebrated right there on the golf course. <laughs> I, I am not sure we did anything other than, like, go out to dinner. We were a very close-knit team, and I think we probably just got ready for nationals. I mean, it's like one and done. Like, yeah, let's go. But, like, let's go to nationals. Let's go try and win. And you mentioned four-putting at the beginning of that round, right? So in a team competition, right, every, every stroke counts. So do, do you, as the captain of the team, did you ever have to talk to the team or did your coach ever have to talk to the team like, look, if your round is going south, right, don't let it go completely south, right? Don't let, a, don't let a 78 turn into an 82 or an 82 turn into an 85 because one or two of those shots might be the difference between us winning, you know, winning this tournament or, or losing, did you ever have to have that competition? Like, you know, mentally don't go south on us. I think that inherently if you're playing D1 golf, you're so rooted from junior golf that, that you know, even though five of you are traveling, four scores count. And your coach is pretty much giving you keys as to how important you are in terms of the rest of the day if we have one of our players that can't get off the roller coaster and it's just – horrendous so you know it's it's a fine line between you don't want to get too result oriented while you're out on the course and put too much pressure on yourself as certainly as a college player to say oh my gosh I can't make any bogeys but also as a coach you want to give information when appropriate to your players to say look you know we need you right now you like we're we're up to four we got a player out there that's dying not literally but um so you know look coaching is tough and especially in today's day and age, um, golf is so prolific and booming that winning is, is uh, paramount to some of these programs more so than others. So, you know, coaching has changed and college golf has changed. Uh, in my day, it wasn't as cutthroat. Now it really is. And, I mean, look, I've ne- I can't believe that nationals is being televised on Golf Channel. They just had a whole huge expose on the regionals uh, for men and women's golf. I think that's amazing. You have Ricky Fowler, executive producing a show called Driven, which is following OSU golf all the way to nationals. So, I mean, college golf is 100% healthy, and uh, especially junior girls golf, I'm sorry, it's very healthy. So when I hear numbers and, and naysayers and negativity, I just the, the numbers that I see don't support that. And, Debbie, when, when you're working with students, right, and you've had some you know, students go on to play college golf and beyond and that sort of thing, how do, how do you instill in them how to deal with pressure? You talked about having a mental coach earlier. But how do you get your folks to relax out on the golf course, try not to let the pressure get to them, and if it's starting to get to them, how to relieve the pressure? Well, that's a good question. I mean, look, if it's necessary, I have to bring in uh, a mental performance coach or a sports psychologist or whatever you want to call that person. And I've got about five in the back or the palm of my hand for my students, depending on their personalities. I, of course, work with them on the course. But, you know, the bottom line is, but it's really hard as a kid to understand that it's not life or death. 
you're going to shoot 80, who cares? Nobody's dying. I mean, certainly as adults, we have way more perspective than we do as, as kids. So if we can instill any kind of perspective and anything can happen in golf and that I hate to take the title from Rotella, although he is a friend of mine, golf is not a game of perfect. It is inconsistent. It is okay to be inconsistent. And uh, to understand that anything can happen, you can never give up. And, you know, playing one shot at a time while everybody says it, if you can get lost in that fact, that is a beautiful way to play. And, you know, you have to learn to enjoy yourself. I think one thing that Peter Jacobson, who I've known also since I'm a kid, if you don't have a real intrinsic love for the game of golf as a junior, then it is really hard to ride the lows because there will be big time lows and you got to love the game for what it is. Otherwise you can't really ride those lows really well. There's peaks and valleys in, in all athletics. So, you know, I think it's just understanding the family dynamics. Maybe you have to have a talk with the parents. That's always not so easy. And then understanding the kid that's in front of you and, um, you know, really the personality to try and, and get the best out of them in a very, very tough sport. Debbie, just a couple more before we let you go. And I want to I get a tip for our listeners because you've got so many great tips on your website. Again, DebbieDoniger.com. And the, the first one I want to talk about is hip rotation. And most players set up to the ball with their feet square to the target line. And for players my age, and I'm in my early 50s, or anyone for that matter, you know, who want to get a little more hip rotation. Talk about what flaring our feet out can do for us. Well, flaring your feet is just a cheat. It's giving you internal hip rotation. It's giving you external hip rotation. So narrowing your stance and flaring your toes, whatever many degrees you need, 5, 10, 12 degrees, depending on what your teacher tells you, is literally allowing your hips to turn uh, a little bit more if needed. And also narrowing your stance helps you rotate more as well. If you think about just like a wide stance, you can't, you know, it's going to hinder rotation. So the narrower you get and you flare a little, you know, you get a little toe flare, that's an immediate hip rotation uh, key. And it's in your setup, so then you don't have to think about it. And, Debbie, as a result of the years playing the game and being outside exposed to the sun, you developed skin cancer. Talk about how you found out what you went through and what you're doing now to prevent it. Oh, I didn't know you were going to talk about that. So I did a, I did a testimony for my dermatologist, Dr. Whitney Bowe, and her book, The Beauty of Dirty Skin. And I have had four, actually one was a squamous. So I'm going to say three basal cells on my face and had to have uh, four Mohs, M-O-H-S, surgeries. And, you know, look, I'm in my 40s. I don't really care what people think anymore. And so I think it's really important to talk about because if you see my website, if you see me on Instagram, you would have no idea that I've had skin cancer and these crazy surgeries and stitches. And, look, I think some of it's in my DNA. If I had worn sunblock when I was 12 through all through college and professional golf, would I have had these skin cancers? I don't know if you could say yes or no. Um, it's not genetic. My family doesn't have skin cancer. That's a little strange. The fact that I've had four 
and I'm in my 40s is strange. Um, you know, the sun is the only key that, that we can harp on to think, well, what do we do about it? So uh, Dr. Bo, and she's a personal friend of mine as well, has been able to uh, give me some vitamins, probiotics that deal with skin health uh, that I wouldn't have otherwise known. She's also given me a vitamin called HelioCare, which anybody can get at Walgreens. And it's, uh, there's a fern extract in there, again, scientifically proven to mitigate skin cancer. So everything that she's given me, she's ridiculously smart. Um, she it ruthlessly researches it, you know, she talks all over the world. So it's scientifically based uh, protocols that she's given me, as well as sunblock, obviously. I do laser treatments. Uh, I do whatever it takes to not have this happen again. And my kids are very aware of the importance of sunblock. And, you know, look, she sees more tennis, sailing, and golf uh, skin cancers than any other sport, and it's all, you know, even you in your 50s, um, you know, you just have to stay on top of it. It's like anything. If you catch it early, you should be fine. If you ignore it and you want to be in denial and then it happens, it's not so good. So the key is talk about it. Go get your skin checked. Uh, I would go to somebody who has really good technology, not just a glance over. I've been to enough dermatologists that sort of gloss over and they're like, yeah, you're fine. It's not fine. There's more technology out there to really look inside something that bothers you. And if something bothers you, you need to speak up and be your own advocate. Debbie, before we let you go, let our listeners know, how can they stay up to date with all the great things that you're doing, whether it's you know, on your website, on the air, or over social media as well? Oh, thanks, man. Look, I'm not great at social media. I'm trying to get better at it. <laughs> but anybody can contact me at DebbieDoniger.com. I do teach outside lessons, like you said, at Glen Arbor Golf Club. It's what I do now. I teach for a living. Um, and you can follow me at Debbie Doniger on Twitter. It's at Deborah, D-E-B-O-R-A-H, Doniger, D-O-N-I-G-E-R, on Instagram. And listen to our show on Sirius. We're on Thursday nights from 8 to 10. I'm with my co-host. He's one of my close, close friends. And we marry what the body does and what the swing does and, and try and help everybody form, dictates, function. So it's a different sort of way of looking at it and very individualized, which is the way I think golf instruction is going. So that is where you can find me. Well, Debbie, thank you so much for taking time out of your night to come and be a part of the show. A thousand other questions I'd love to ask you. I hope you'll come back and do it again sometime because you've been fantastic. Oh, it's my pleasure. Sit, tell PK, I know he's after me, that I say hi and anytime. All right, Debbie. Take care. All the best to you and your family. I look forward to catching up with you again real soon. All right. Thanks, man. You too. All right. See you, Debbie. That's Debbie Doniger, and uh, again, her website is DebbieDoniger.com, D-O-N-I-G-E-R, Debbie Doniger. And, uh, boy, you want to talk about some great stories, some great tips, some great insights. She's got some great videos on her site, and, uh, boy, I sure hope we get the opportunity to catch up with her soon because, like I said, i got about a 1,000 other questions I had here to talk to her about, and hopefully we get the opportunity to do that. Before I get to my next guest, Peter Kessler, I want to give a shout-out to a few of our sponsors. First, folks, you've heard me talking about Club Hub sensors over the last several months. Well, it's the best portable shot tracking and swing analysis golf device out there on the market. Other shot trackers tell you what happened. Club Hub's going to tell you what happened and why. 
Take the progress that you make on the practice tee directly to your rounds with the only device of its kind that can go on the course with you. I have club hub sensors on all of my clubs. They screw right into the tops of your grips. And I can tell you, since I put the club hub sensors on my clubs, I've learned more about my swing and all of the data surrounding it than I've learned over the 40 years I've been playing the game. Because not only do you get GPS distances to the hazards and to the green, but after your round, you can look back at the images and the layout of every hole in the course that you just played and see exactly where and how far you hit every shot. No other GPS tool on the market captures that. Let you go back and review your round the way the Club Hub app does. It's available for Androids or iPhones, and the app keeps track of your swing speed of every club in your bag, your tempo, your angle of attack, plus you get a 3D view of your swing as well. And again, no other rangefinder can do all that for you. Go over to clubhubgolf.com to order your set of Club Hub sensors today and enter the coupon code NEXT to get 10% off on all products at checkout. Again, clubhubgolf.com, enter the coupon code NEXT, and you're going to get the best GPS and swing analysis tool on the market for a great low price and you see your game in a whole new way i also want to remind you about our friends over at par bar energy and focus on the course are essential whether you're playing you know on tour in your club championship or just your weekend pour ball with your buddies par bar is the golfer's nutritional bar that can help you with both of those things energy and focus eat some before you get to the first tee and the rest of every three holes until it's finished and you're going to play with more energy and focus to win Parbar was developed by a lifelong golfer and a food scientist to help all golfers play their best. Go online to parbargolf.com and order yours today. We're also excited to be partnering with the Ben Hogan Golf Equipment Company. All Ben Hogan irons and wedges are handcrafted one at a time in their Fort Worth, Texas factory. No mass production, no shortcuts. Now you can order custom-made irons, wedges, and hybrids at benhogangolf.com. They build clubs to your specification, and best of all, charge you a fraction of the typical retail price. Check out their complete line of forged irons, wedges, utility irons, hybrids, and bags, plus accessories now at benhogangolf.com. And folks, this section of the show is sponsored by our good friends over at the PGA Tour Superstore. This segment of the show is brought to you by the PGA Tour Superstore. See why golfers everywhere are proud to call PGA Tour Superstore their golf pro shop. Visit them online at PGATourSuperstore.com. Now back to Chris and more of the show. And now back with me on the French Lick Resort guest line is the voice of golf, Peter Kessler. Be sure to follow Peter on his Facebook page and over on Twitter, at Peter Kessler. Also, be sure to check out Peter's uh, podcast titled Reading the Break, which you can find on his website, peterkessler.com, on readingthebreak.com, over on SoundCloud, or even on our site, nextonthetee.net. No one knows more about the history of golf than Peter does. Those of you who are like me, you've been watching Peter since he helped launch the Golf Channel back in 1995. His show, Golf Talk Live, is by far the best golf show there's ever been. Peter has also interviewed every major golf figure of the 20th and 21st centuries. And you know, we've been lobbying for Peter to be inducted into the World Golf Hall of Fame for his lifetime achievements and the contributions that he's made to the game of golf. My ultimate day, folks, you know, a round of golf at Augusta National, but that would be quickly followed by sitting on the veranda of the clubhouse listening to Peter tell stories. It just couldn't get any better than that. Good evening, Peter. How are you, my friend? Uh, After that introduction, I'm doing great. I was so down and depressed, but all better now. Thank you. (laughs) You bet, Peter. So, Peter, you probably heard my last guest, Debbie Doniger. She sends her best regards to you. And and, uh, I know that uh, she has known you since, you know, she said practically her whole life. What do you remember about Debbie? Well, you know, it's funny. I, I, I joined you just as she was talking about skin cancer. And 
I knew Debbie when she was, oh, eight years old, maybe nine, and her dad, Bill Doniger, belonged to the same club that I played golf at in Greenwich, Connecticut. And uh, it, it's uh, it's funny strange as opposed to funny haha. but in thinking back about Debbie and the son when she was a girl, and I watched her probably from eight, well, really, even when she went to college and would come home from college, I would see her, but she was always sunburnt. She was always sunburned. She was darker than anybody else. She had she didn't have the kind of skin that lent itself to getting real darkly tanned, but rather she would get burned and so she had a fairer skin than you know, if you're there's there's six levels. If you're you know, if you're a four or five um, and you're Caucasian, then you can handle the lot the sun a lot better than if you're a lower number. And uh, and she was always sunburned as a kid, so you know, not shocked to hear um, that she would have issues. But you know, at that time, you know, there wasn't nearly the kind of information that there was even a decade later about um, you know the kind of protection that you could use to put on your face and all these uh, differing degrees of of, uh, of strength of protection. And, you know, she, she wasn't using it then, and people weren't. I remember even in the 60s when I would go with my mom and my younger sister to the pool that she had one of those shields that she would put down that would reflect the sun onto your face. It was like a mirror. And everybody had them in the 50s and 60s. And everybody who, you know, went, went to a local pool would have the these these shields and they would reflect the sun and people weren't wearing anything to protect themselves. I mean, it was a completely different time. So I understand how she, you know, how she ended up having a problem, even though, as I remember, I don't think that ran in her family, but she was a really wonderful player. When, when she first took up the game, she definitely had an affinity for it. It reminds me of the Lydia Coe story. When she was four or five, she went to a range and somebody gave her a club and she just started hitting good shots and, and somebody pointed out that she had like ideal natural hand action and Debbie Doniger really had uh, a natural feel for the game and uh, played some really good golf, uh, was competitive as a teenager. She wasn't big, uh, she wasn't tall she was, you know, maybe, Debbie's maybe 5'4 or so and, um, and, and an appropriate weight for her height and um, but, but she could she could play and she had a really good short game and she played in college and uh, yeah, she it was a wonderful family, and, uh, and I'm delighted to see how well she's doing, and I'm not surprised that she's made her way in the golf world. Good for her. I'm glad she's got the radio show, and we, we stay in irregular touch, but uh, I'll always be a fan of hers, and uh, I think just great things about her, and she's somebody you definitely want to tee it up with because I'm sure she can still break 75. Peter, I want to spend some time talking about some some parallels that I started to see between uh, the careers of Bobby Jones and Tiger Woods. Because if you go back to the 1930s, 
right? So at the end of Jones's career, there were some young upstart guys winning a bunch of tournaments in the 30s. Henry Picard, Gene Sarazen, those guys, Sarazen winning, you know, four made all four majors between 32 and 35. Those guys, you know, in the 30s started to become the story in golf, just like today we see some of the younger guys, the Jordan Spieth and Justin Thomases, becoming the story on the PGA Tour. Yet when Bobby Jones agreed to come back and play in what was then the Augusta National Invitational, what would become the Masters, his comeback became the story. It overshadowed everything, like, like Tiger now. Right, Tiger is now the story, whether he is or not. Right, it felt like to me Jason Day was almost an afterthought that he won. Tiger finishing tied for 55th seemed to get all the headlines. Do you see parallels for what what it was like for Jones and and his comeback and all of the attention and the media surrounding it to what we see now with Tiger? Well, it's it's different because. When Jones retired in 1930 at the age of 28 from formal competitions, you know, he he wrote a note and said, gee, I, you know, at some point I I may, you know, show up at championships, but I'm done with championships for now. And really the only reason that Jones played in the 34 Masters was he was encouraged to play because he was the host of the golf tournament. And Southern Company Manors at that time, as a host, meant you participated in whatever the activity was. So he reluctantly played in the 34 Masters, but he knew how important it was, as you suggest, from a media point of view, in getting the thing jump-started. And what they did that was so clever in 1934 to put the Masters on the map immediately is, one, they had Bobby Jones, and Bobby Jones was the most golden hero of the golden age of sport, even more so than Babe Ruth or Jack Dempsey. I mean, he was the guy. So for Jones to be putting on a golf tournament at which every great player showed up except for Gene Sarazen in 34, because Gene had made a commitment to do some exhibitions in South America. And of course he played the next year and won and completed the career slam. So the, just the appearance of Jones at the tournament was huge in terms of public interest because it was overstated that Jones was coming back. He wasn't. He was just going to play in the event, and he didn't play anything until the next year. So, you know, it wasn't like he returned to championship golf. The other thing that was going on was that the greatest sports writers of the time, one of whom was a member, Grantland Rice, who was you know, just you know as big a name as you could possibly have in terms of sports writing, including golf, who wrote a, a biography of Bobby Jones, um, along with Obie Keeler, who was uh, a journalist who traveled with Jones to every one of his major championships, and with Jones wrote all of the things that Jones wrote, and he chronicled everything that Jones did, and you know he was you know really really his companion. And but Grantland Rice was a member of the club and a big shot at the time, and so what Jones and Clifford Roberts, the co-founder of Augusta National, decided to do was to hold the golf tournament right after the exhibition baseball season was over in Florida. So they got a special car for the sports riders, and they delivered them from Florida up to Augusta, put them up in the Bon Air Hotel, took really good care of them, 
And so all of the greatest sports writers showed up at the very first Masters, and they were treated uh, like royalty, and they were enamored of Jones, and Jones had just retired a few years before, so his star was still pretty bright. And so it was written about, you know, extensively during the week and and after the, the championship was over, and that's what helped put it on the map. But when Jones came back, it was to play reluctantly as the host, and I think he finished tied for 13th, and that would be the best finish he would ever have in the Masters. And he was on record as saying in the first round, which he uh, played with Paul Runyon, Jones said that on the second hole, which was actually what is now the 11th hole, he had about a 20-footer for birdie, and it was a big rainbow putt. And he said as soon as he hit the putt, he realized that the magic was gone. He realized that he didn't have the touch that he had that allowed him to win 13 of the last 21 majors in which he played. And and because he realized instantly the magic was gone, he he didn't have great expectations anyway, but he certainly lowered them at that point. And he never really could handle the greens that he and Alistair McKenzie built at Augusta National. He always had problems with it from the time it was built going forward relative to the kind of putting display he had put on from 1923 through 1930. Now, in Tiger's case... You have somebody who's actually trying to make a comeback, and so the frenzy is is greater because in Jones's case, I think he played down expectations that he would do more than play as the host of the golf tournament. In Tiger's case, you know, people are hoping that, you know, the, his biggest fans are hoping that he's going to win tournaments and win major championships again and be competitive in important events as he was, you know, for a few weeks earlier this year. So this is a comeback. And, um, and you know, in Tiger's trying to make his mark as opposed to playing celebrity golf, you know, which is really what Jones did at that point. He was playing as a celebrity, playing as a host, as a, opposed to playing as a competitor. But Tiger's playing as a competitor. But the expectation of Jones's arrival on the golf course was tremendous for its time. And, of course, the expectations at the golf tournaments that Tiger shows up now are humongous. And at the Players' Championship, I expect the crowds will be very large. He, of course, didn't play well last week. And, uh, you know, everybody rises and falls with how he does. And he didn't play particularly well at the Masters either. Never got himself to where he wanted to be for the weekend. So, you know, this is uh, this is a work in, in progress. And uh, this is not a course that you would think of for Tiger at this point. I mean, he's won on this golf course. but And he did it when he won the Grand Slam. So he had the Grand Slam plus the players. So he had all five at one time um, after he completed the Masters in 2001 to complete the Grand slam the month before he had won the players championship but you know in those days he was the straightest player around everybody thinks he did it with shipping and putting but in 2000 and 2001 and 2002 he put the ball in play he hit greens and either he made the putt or he missed the putt and he went to the next hole there was very little recovery shots there was very little chipping and putting everything was three-quarter-ish i mean i was with him at the 2000 u.s open at pebble and i walked 67 of the seven Seventy-two holes with him, and uh, it was—he just put the ball in play, and then he would hit the green, and you know, and he would have a ten-footer, and he'd make a bunch of them, and he missed a bunch of them, and but I mean, you know, there was, you know, there were a few, you know, acrobatic shots.
shots during the week and a few that demonstrated his power, one iron in particular that he hit to the par five sixth hole, which was particularly dramatic from a long way away. And it wasn't a long club. I think it was a seven iron. It was a couple of hundred yards and it's straight up a hill. And, you know, he put it within, you know, makeable eagle range. And so he had a few fantastic shots and demonstrating his power, but basically he just put the ball in play. And that's what you've got to do at this golf course this week is you've got to put the ball in play. And so Tiger has not been putting the ball in play. And it's, you know, you look at the history of the winners and it's a lot of guys who just put the ball in play as opposed to, you know, the biggest hitters. Dustin Johnson has not had a fun time at the Players' Championship over the course of his career. A lot of the big knockers have not. Um, so the expectation for Tiger this week needs to be muted a little bit. But he can hit a lot of three woods and he can hit a lot of stingers. I remember watching him the year that he won and he hit that stinger with the two iron a bunch. It would go like 20 feet above the ground and then it would just kind of fall to the left. It was a little bit of a draw, but a little bit of a fall. But he could just put it in play on every single hole. If he will adopt a conservative strategy this week from the tee, and there's every reason to think that if I think of it, he's thought of it, that, you know, that uh, he could actually put himself in play because he's still the most ridiculous iron player. I mean, he was number one in greens and regulation a few times in the early part of his career and found himself close to number one on other occasions. I mean, his iron play is just such an underrated thing. It was for Jack Nicholas too. They, you know, par threes were actually the place where Tiger and Jack had their biggest advantage, not par fives, because they both hit the ball so high and the ball sat down so quickly and they would hit less club than other people into the par three hole, that they were hitting it higher with a shorter shaft, with more control, with a ball that just sat down, didn't spin back, didn't bounce forward. And that was where they had a huge advantage was their ability to play shorter irons and higher stopping, fast stopping shots on the par three holes. And so anyway, Tiger needs to put in play. And if he can, he can play. And Peter, going back to something you said a moment ago about Jones's putting, right? right now we're seeing Tiger struggle on the green. Same thing happened to Jones when he played in the Masters. Amazingly enough, he was still hitting his drives 280 to 300 yards with that equipment, which I find absolutely astounding. But in the 34 Masters, Jones couldn't even make the little short putts. And Hogan so, you know, went through the same thing with his putting. Is this just rust? with Tiger, or is this something that we've seen other great players go through after they've had an extended layoff? Well, you know, the the putting is the thing that goes first. You know, Arnold sensed in the early 60s when he was in his early 30s that his putting was starting to elude him. You know, he was the best player in the world from 1958 Masters roughly till the U.S. Open ended in 1962, which he lost to Jack Nicklaus at Oakmont in the playoff. And for the 90 holes, Nicklaus had one three-putt, and Arnold had 11 three-putts. And Arnold, by 64, was having trouble with his putting, and certainly against Casper in 66 at Olympic, where he lost the seven-shot lead with nine holes to play in the U.S. Open at Casper. He had some putting issues. And, uh, you know, Seve wasn't winning anymore after that. Um, Tiger won his last major championship at 32. Watson at 34-ish. Couldn't putt anymore after that. Very few guys retained their putting. Nicholas kept it for his whole life. I saw him not too long ago. I said, how are you putting? And he said, I am just as steady over it now as I was when I was 25, and that's saying something. Gary Player was remained a good putter for his entire career. 
Um, Billy Casper remained a good putter for his entire career. Lee Trevino remained a good putter for his entire career. That's about the list. And Hale Irwin was able to take it uh, to take it deep into his career. You know, he was always a good putter, but then he actually became a better putter as he got older. Funnily enough, made so many birdies as a, as a senior. Um, so what Tiger's going through now could be problematic because, you know, here he is in his early 40s and, you know, I just on one hand have figured out the guys who, you know, were still putting good in their early 40s. So, you know, it's not a great list. Phil wasn't putting good at this age and Phil's been putting better this year and he's worked his fanny off inside of six feet. I mean, it's very obvious his stroke is much better inside of six feet. He used to have trouble taking the club back too far, and he'd decelerate, and he lost a lot of tournaments missing inside of five feet. Major championships could be problematic for him, and so he's always been a kind of a streaky putter, I think, and um, and he's enjoying some success right now, and he's working hard at it. So this is a big question mark for Tiger because it he isn't putting badly, and he doesn't have the yips, but he's not making anything, you know, and that's what Arnold said to me. I said, so, you know, so how did you know, you know, that it was trouble other than you started missing? And he said, yeah, I, he said, you know, I, he said, putts that I used to just hit right in the middle of the hole. He said, if it had a little break, he said, all of a sudden I might be a little too firm and, and, and play it too high, or I might decelerate thinking I had set it, set up the blade too high on the intended starting line and I would ease into it. And he said, so I started losing my touch to make putts. And so what we don't know is how is Tiger's touch? We know he's not been making a bunch of stuff and he hasn't really made a bunch of stuff all year since he started this comeback. But mechanically, he looks very good to me. I, uh, the putter seems to be traveling through the same space in the sky that it has historically. His posture looks the same the way he's arranged himself over the golf ball and his ball position looks the same to me. And there's a little hinge going back. There's a little release going through, which a lot of guys don't do, which is what Rory McIlroy did when he wanted Bay Hill because he had seen Brad Faxon. And Brad Faxon said, loosen it up. He said, let the putter head go to the right of your hands going back. Don't don't make a shoulder stroke. Have a little a little play in your wrists. Have a little play going through. And Tiger's always had that. Jack didn't do that. Ben Crenshaw did do that. Bobby Jones did do that. Billy Casper did do that. Lee Trevino did not do that. Greg Norman did not do that. Uh, actually, uh, Greg was right in the middle. I, I remember there was a, a time when I felt like uh, there was some good play in his wrist, but generally he was pretty pretty solid and a lot of shoulder strokes. But so the Tiger question is, you know, really one that we're going to have to find out over the next few months as the season now, you know, starts to accelerate to the last three major championships and the Players Championship is of course this week, and those aren't the hardest greens in the world, and they're not the most undulating greens in the world, and they're greens that Tiger can certainly handle, and he hasn't demonstrated any problem with touch on 30-footers on undulating greens. It just may be what Arnold told me, hey, a little too firm, so I'm missing it high, a little decel, missing it low. He knows what's going on. He knows what to work on, and we'll find out if you can regain your touch. You know, he was born a great putter, and I'm hoping that he's just temporarily um, finding it an elusive thing, and that he'll be able to put his hands on it again. Peter, you you mentioned when you were talking about Tiger and and the and the, and the players, right? He held all five you know, at one time, right? 
for for years, maybe forever, people have talked about the the Players Championship being sort of like the fifth Beatle, right? It, it, the, the media always wants to talk about is it the fifth major? Will it become the fifth major? Is that something that's just the media stirring the pot? Or is there still someone, you think, within the tour that is pushing for the players to maybe eventually become a major? Well, I mean, of course the tour wants it to be characterized as a major and accepted as a major because, you know, un- unlike other organ- sports organizations, I mean, the NFL controls the Super Bowl, but the PGA Tour doesn't control any of the four major championships. So, sure, they would like a fifth one to be, you know, their major championship. You know, the Masters runs the Masters, and PGA runs the PGA, and the USGA runs the US Open, and the RNA runs the Open Championship, and so, of course, they want it to be, but I liken their asking this to be characterized as a major championship as somebody like, you know, somebody who's a member at Augusta National, and if you ask to play, it's probably no, and if you ask to become a member, it's a definitely no, and I think that uh, what, you know, they're going through at the tour level is, you know, they're, they're, they're pushing it to be a major, they're trying to get it to be a major, they got all the guys on the Golf Channel saying it should be a major, except for Frank Novello sticking to his guns of four majors, you know, and Brandel takes the view that, well, it's got the, the biggest field, so it's the hardest tournament to win, but it's really not because if you look at the winners, it's not the greatest players of all time, really. There's a lot of, you know, okay players on that list. Um, you know, Jack won it, but he didn't win it there, but he won it three times. But uh, you, you can't force it, and they've tried to force it, and it's not happening. And there's four majors, and the Players' Championship is a hugely important tournament. You know, but I right after the four majors, you know, if I was a player, you know, the ones that I'd be most interested in winning, I'd want to win at Riviera. I would want to win at Muirfield. I would want to win the Players' Championship. I would want to win the Tour Championship. But I'd be good with sort of any of those. And the weakest golf course, quite frankly, is the course that the players will play this week at TPC and uh, the stadium course. And, you know, the the other courses, you know, that I just mentioned are are better golf courses and you'd like to win on those. So, you know, winning at Riviera because everybody shows up. Everybody shows up at Jack's. Everybody shows up at the players. Um, You know, the 30 best guys show up at the Tour Championship. So that's a trickier one because, you know, it just shows that you played well all, all, all year long, but it's such a small field. But, you know, that's a super, super event to win. So it's right there in that grouping, and maybe it leads that pack, but it's certainly not in the top four. Those are those are chiseled in stone. You know, that's Mount Rushmore. There's, there's no more rock, and Michelangelo is not going to create uh, a, a, another face on that mountain. Peter, last week I was joined by Tony Jacklin, and Tony won a couple of majors, did some great things, particularly in the Ryder Cup and back in the 80s, both as a player, you know, way back when, obviously, but as a captain in the 80s. Give me your thoughts. How do you characterize Tony Jacklin's career? Well, he happens to be a really good friend of mine and has been a good friend of mine for a very long time, over 20 years. and. We've played golf together, and we've hung out together, and we've done a bunch of TV, and we did print, and we did radio, and uh, we've gone um, together on uh, speaking engagements. You know, Tony, uh, you know, grew up in Scunthorpe, England, and he would hit uh, he would hit balls really off a 
piece of rubber from a tire to, you know, 20 feet away. I mean, he had nowhere to hit the golf ball. And, you know, as a teenager, he got a job in the pro shop and he turned pro. And while he was in his teens, when he still wasn't a good player, and but he quickly became a very, very good player. And when he came over to the United States, uh, Jack Nicholas was really good to Tony and uh, took him in and, you know, showed him the ropes of playing over here. Tony was still a young man at that time in the in the mid-60s. And, and his first tournament win was uh, 68 at Jacksonville, and that's really what got him going um, because he built up a lot of confidence. He beat Arnold and a few other guys that week. And, um, you know, and then the next year, uh, he went ahead and won the British Open at Royal Lithium and St. Anne's by a zillion shots. And, you know, every time we talk about it, I always steer him around to the ninth hole, of the final round. And he says, yeah, he said it wasn't over yet. And I was really nervous and I had a 30-footer and I hit it 10 feet too hard and hit the back of the cup, went straight up in the air and straight into the cup. And he said, and then I relaxed and I played a, a really good final nine. And um, he was playing with uh, Bob Charles and... Uh, they it came down to the end of the tournament, and uh, Bob drove first and said, "Oh, it's in a bunker, and I'm in terrible shape." And Tony said to himself, "That ball's perfect," and he went ahead and beat Bob. And actually, when they were coming down the back nine, in those days the clubs were made differently, and you know if you had a wood, there was you know string, what was we called whipping in those days, kind of a nylon string that wrapped around the bottom where the the shaft and the hosel would meet and Bob Charles's uh, uh started to come unraveled and uh they wanted to go back into the pro shop and have somebody deal with it and Tony Jacklin who of course had worked in a pro shop knew how to deal with whipping on clubs and knew how to you know take care of clubs and fix whipping and and put new whipping on and so he sat down on one of the tees and took Bob Charles's clubs and fixed the whipping for Bob and then gave Bob a whipping and uh so of course he won that year and then you know he won won the next year he won the US Open so he had both titles at the same time and then in 72 you know it looked like he was going to win the Open Championship again at Muirfield and Nicholas went out in front of him six shots behind and shot six under and what's forgotten is that Jack bogeyed 16 and didn't birdie 17 so it was kind of his fault that he didn't end up winning that tournament because he wasn't able to close it out after going six to seven under for the first 15 holes and and Jacqueline and Torino were playing behind him going, we better get going. And they both eagled nine and uh, came down to 17. And Tony was right in front of the par five, 17th and two. And Lee had missed three shots and now was over the green and four. And Tony had a very, very simple, straightforward little chip. I mean, it couldn't have been any more straightforward. And, and he hit, didn't hit a good chip. He hit it to about 15 feet where... A 12 handicapper would have hit it to 15 feet from where he was. It was a really, really rank shot. And then Trevino chipped in, and then Tony three-putted, missing the last one from, oh, 30 inches, no more, hit a little pull. And all of a sudden, Trevino, chipping in for par, had the one-stroke lead, and he raced to the 18th tee and hit his shot before Tony was even there just to keep it moving, and he didn't want to start thinking about choking. And and Jacqueline went and bogeyed that hole, too. So Nicholas finished second, and, and there was Jacqueline. And Tony just said to me a million times, he said, after that happened, he said, I was just never the same again. He said, I just he said, I just never had the confidence. I didn't feel like I could compete anymore. 
there was part of me that felt like, okay, well, you won both open, so you did that, and you know, and you you're you're you know super player, and uh, and he said, and I never got it together again, and he said, you know, Des was a spiral from that point forward, and then I had some other issues, and then I had some money issues, and then I had some you know, marriage issues, and he said, but you know, he said my game just, he said I was never the same after that, and then of course, you know, little did. You know, could we have guessed that you know he would go on to an even greater triumph in terms of the the sport by becoming the successful four-time Ryder Cup captain in the 1980s? And you know, he changed. Tony changed everything. I mean, you know, when he was the captain for the first time in '83. You know, they didn't have like good clothes, and they didn't have good bags, and they didn't have a decent belt, and a good shirt, and sweaters, and a real mess. You know, like plastic shoes that somebody gave them, and junky bags. And Tony changed all of that. And he got, you know, the Americans had always been dressed beautifully, and everything was first class, and uh, they were, you know, they took care of themselves, and they were taken care of. And so Tony changed the whole culture of the European side so that it would be like the American side. And he, he was the first person who came up with the idea, let's have our own private room to meet in because, funnily enough, up to that point, they would kind of meet in one of the players' rooms or, you know, a bunch of guys sitting around on the beds. I mean, it was completely absurd. And, you know, or they would be in the bar or they would be at the corner of the dining room. Tony got in their own meeting room and, you know, and got them to be confident. And, of course, he had Seve Ballesteros, you know, well, all the well, Savage Seve and Sandy Lyle and Bernhard Longer and Nick Faldo. I mean, it was, you know, Dickey and Woosnam. Um, later, Colin Montgomery. I mean, it was, you know, a ridiculous group of guys, you know, all born really around that year of 1957 that Seve was born. And um, so he had, you know, ridiculous talent for those four Ryder Cups, but he made them feel so differently about themselves. And, um, you know, and then he ended up having, I think they won twice, lost once, and tied once was, I think, the record. But they had never done anything before. I mean, nobody even paid attention to the Ryder Cup. I mean, you know, the thing really started in 26, and it was totally informal. And Sam Ryder was a successful businessman who actually came up with the idea of selling seeds in little packets. And I remember when I was a little boy, you could buy my mom would buy us seeds and you know, they'd you'd get a little thing and you'd put the seeds outside and whatever it was would grow and and they were uh they were pen, a penny a packet and he made a fortune and his teacher was uh a Mitchell who was an English pro and so when he had the trophy made he had the top of it look like a Mitchell swing and and then it started formally in 1927, and the Americans were just better players already by then, and you know really just you know kicked their fannies for you know you know decades and decades, and you know, nobody made any money from it, nobody got paid from it, there was no television, there was no anything, and then and nobody really cared about it until the 80s. Then it became a big deal, and then there was the big thing with NBC and the contracts and. You know, and people started showing up for the first time. I mean, I, I went to Ryder Cups before the 80s. There was nobody there. There was nobody there. And I was like, nobody there. And it was like, oh, and how many people are watching the best players at your club? Nobody's nobody there. And, uh, you know, and then, of course, it became big business. And that's where the PGA made their money. And that's where the USGA made their money was when the U.S. Open became a big television, you know, product. And, and then they took over the concession to sell all of the merchandise. That was the big turnaround. The last concession that was held before the USGA got a hold of theirs, the rights to sell the merchandise, was 1997 at Wingfoot. Tom Neoporti was the head pro, 
and and the head pros would have the concessions at the major championships, and they would have the shirts made, and they would sell the shirts, and the pro would make the profit, the club would make the profit, and you know they saw how many shirts sold in '97. They said that's the end of that, and then that's when they started the merchandise tent right after that. And of course, you know the merchandise at the Masters, they do fifty million dollars every single day, and you can't buy it online. Can you imagine how much they would sell if you could buy it online? So they obviously don't need the money because somebody did probably suggest that if they sold it online that they would make billions <laughs> and billions of dollars. And Tom Neaporti was a very interesting guy. He he was really the last club pro that I can think of that won a PGA Tour event. And it's funny because uh, Claude Harmon was the head pro at Wingfoot and won the 48 Masters by five shots. And then uh, Tom Neaporti ended up succeeding him and he won the Bob Hope Desert Classic in 67. And he was driving from tournament to tournament on the West Coast in a station wagon and in a lot of pair of black shoes. And for the final round of the Bob Hope that he won, he mismatched a pair of black shoes. And afterwards, they're sitting up with Bob Hope and uh, President Eisenhower and his wife, Mamie Eisenhower. And they're taking a break. And Mamie Eisenhower looks down at his shoes and sees that he's wearing two different shoes and kind of looks up at him and he goes, yeah, I got a pair exactly like it in the car. And uh, he was uh, he, he was uh, he was a terrific guy. I, I saw him a lot. I used to live very close to Wingfoot and played a lot of golf there. And uh, but Tony was Tony was you know uh, just just a, a wonderful player for a very brief period of time. He too lost his putting, lost his confidence. Young man, huge mark as a Ryder Cupper, and uh, you know, and he hasn't been forgotten. And he does a lot of outings, and he's got a few good sponsors, and. Uh, he makes some uh, interesting uh, figures out of, he carves wood, and he's made the faces of a zillion great players, and uh, he's actually very talented. He doesn't really play much golf. I could probably cajole him into playing around if I went down and see him. He's just a couple hours away, but, you know, we've been friends for a long time, and I just think he's a lovely guy, and he's very relaxed, and you know, loved Jack, and loved Arnold, and loved Gary, and he, he's, he's, I think he's happy with what happened. Well, Peter, before we let you go, do what we always ask you to do, right? Remind remind our listeners, how can they follow you, stay up to date with the great things that, uh, that you're doing and that you've done over the course of your career? Because there's no better storyteller than Peter Kessler. I don't even know what I'm doing, so I don't even know how people can find out what I'm doing. I'm trying to figure it all out. I, I'm trying to... Uh get myself in a position where I can do some shows again where I would host and do a variety of things, some like the Golf Channel and some other ideas that I've got. But, you know, the same sort of thing, interviewing and hosting and and researching and writing and voicing and all that stuff. So I'd like to do some stuff on camera again. And I'm working with some people that may turn out to be something, in which case we would have an online presence and uh, try to cobble together a lot of new content. And I've got some ideas for some other people that I like to have appear on camera that have not been asked um, that I think could do a really great job. 
and you know have a few different hosts, have a lot of content of a lot of different kinds. So I'm working on that. I I, I have seven podcasts on my website, peterkessler.com, and my bio is there. And I'm I'm working. And I stopped doing the podcast because I've been writing a book and I've been putting the stories in the book instead of the podcast. And so I can't figure out quite what to do there. I'm going to try to do something else with the podcast. I may do something on YouTube. I may do something on Facebook Live. I'm I'm, I'm working on a bunch of ideas. So probably the next go around when we get to the next major uh hopefully i'll uh, be in a little uh, more solidified shape and i can share what i'm doing well peter no matter how much time i get to spend with you it's never nearly enough i can't thank you enough for being back here tonight for how generous you've been with your time you are just the very best and there's just no other way to say it no matter what you do no matter how you've done it whether it's on podcasts or on radio or on tv you're the best my friend Thanks, buddy. Well, I I, uh, I love being on the show. Uh, you 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 promote me like crazy off of the show, and I'm very very honored. And you know, I I I I heard you about the World Golf Hall of Fame thing, and you know, just just to take it seriously for a second. I if I had continued to bang out TV shows for another ten years beyond the seven or eight that I did then something like that would have been more likely and then adding the radio to it. But I think I haven't been quite visible enough for a period of time that's long enough that if I can put together another gig that will allow me to do a lot of programming over, say, another you know, five to ten year period and I can complete the contribution, you know, and then, you know, then maybe I fall into the category of people that would be considered. But I feel like there's much left to be accomplished and I haven't done enough by any standard yet. But if I got a crack to to, to, to bang out some more stuff and do it for another five to ten years, then it would be a pretty cool portfolio. And um, I don't know if the World Golf Hall of Fame is the answer, but it will have certainly satisfied me if I can uh, have one more go around. Well, you know I'm rooting hard for that, and anything that we can do to uh, to promote that or uh, or let people know about it or whoever we need to talk to, we're we're certainly all about it. Cause, uh, and I mean it sincerely, you're the best that's ever done this. Well, thanks, buddy. I I was certainly th- uh, taken aback the other day when I saw your new picture on social media, and I went. Now, wait a minute. Is that Chris or is that Bob Redford as Sundance and Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid? I, <laughs> I, I, I had to take, take a second look. So you're looking good, and I love the show, and I love what you do for golf, and you make a huge contribution actually to sports in general too, but um, your contribution to golf is just absolutely incredible. It's really, really consistent, and your, your, the quality of your work is really consistent, and that's, that's the thing. It's not just having you know the platform. It's delivering consistent every single week and that's what Jack did at the top of his career that's what Tiger did and you do that you do that every time I hear your show I go it's really really good and it's really really consistent and it's a very hard thing to do in any walk of life but you've totally nailed it here and I've got a great deal of respect for you well I appreciate that very much Peter I look good forward to hopefully getting the opportunity to catch up with you again real soon thanks for being here again tonight Peter I appreciate you very much you've got my number talk to you soon pal alright take care Peter That is the great Peter Kessler, and like I say, you know, uh, very sincerely, uh, he is the greatest of all time. There's no question in my mind, and uh, hopefully he gets the opportunity to get back behind a mic or or a a television camera because – there, there's just no one better at uh, talking golf than Peter Kessler. So we uh, we got our fingers crossed for that. 
All right, folks, it is time for me to put a bow on this episode of Next on the Team. My sincere thanks go out to Debbie Doniger and, of course, Peter Kessler for joining this week, and I hope you enjoyed the show. Please give me your thoughts. Check out our page on Facebook, Next on the Team with Chris Mascaro, and share your feedback with me there. Plus, if you've got a question for one of our future guests or uh, someone who's recently been on the show, please let me know. We'll get that question answered for you. You can see who some of our future guests are going to be by going online to our website, nextonthetea.net. Please also check out our sister show on the football side, Thursday Night Tailgate, with me and my co-host Bob Lazari and our announcer Joe Lajanusa. That show airs live every Thursday night from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time right here on Blog Talk Radio. And that show like this one, also available as a free podcast over on iHeartRadio or on Podbean. Every week on Thursday Night Tailgate, we are joined by five NFL legends sharing their stories from their playing days, plus their insights into what's going on around the NFL today. Plus, we also highlight two players doing great things in their communities and our spotlight on the positive segment. You can find that show online. Our website there is ThursdayNightTailgate.com. And like I say, this one is NextOnTheT.net. Folks, we can't thank you enough for choosing to listen to this show tonight. We know you got a lot of shows and podcasts to listen to. We really appreciate the fact that you are making Next on the T one of them. Until next week, hit them straight, my friends. You've been listening to Next on the T with Chris Mascaro, where PGA and LPGA pros and top instructors and media members go to tell their stories. Join us the same time every Tuesday to hear more stories about the game we love from people who love sharing those stories with you. It's all about the great game of golf. It's all about the great game of golf.